Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks.com, and here on our show, we talk about all things technological. Sometimes we look at a specific technology. Sometimes we talk about a person who is really important in the development of tech as we know it, but today... We're going to do one of the types of episodes that you guys tell me you love, and that's the history, the story of a big company that's important in technology. And the one we're going to talk about is Xerox. And I know there are a lot of people out there who don't realize what, how large a role Xerox has played in the way technology works today and the way that we interact with our technology. But the truth is, it's a company that has had a huge impact on the way we interact with our technology. Now, today, we're going to focus on the early years of Xerox's development. In fact, we're going to get only up to a couple of years after they called themselves the Xerox company for the first time. So uh, we're focusing on the early times. Uh, but in the second part of this episode series, we will focus more on some of the R&D that Xerox did that has been so transformational to our technology today. So let's focus on some early stuff. We're really going to talk about the history of Xerox, and it may sound straightforward. You're probably thinking about copier machines, and in fact, that will play a huge role in Xerox's history. But we're going to take some time in these episodes, because I'm sure it's going to require a couple to really talk about how the company has developed over time. And it's done far more than just make photocopiers and contributed in major ways to our technology. The story stretches back more than a century. Officially, Xerox traces its history back to 1906, although it was a very different company and it had a different name back in those days. And I'm already getting ahead of myself because even if we just jumped into 1906, we wouldn't have enough context to understand what is happening in the world and and the company that would become Xerox. So, you know, I love my history. And as I've said on other episodes, it's really tricky to find a starting point for any given actual story, because as it turns out, life is a continuous timeline that stretches all the way back into prehistory, which is a bit grand to just talk about Xerox. If I were to say, and then man discovered fire, you would be here 
for many episodes, and I don't think we need to go back quite that far. So instead, we're going to talk about what was going on in the 1800s, the 19th century, that leads toward the founding of Xerox. Now, one person who was incredibly important to those early years at Xerox never worked for the company. He was not an employee of Xerox at all. In fact, he was the man who created a company that was one of Xerox's big competitors in the early days. And that was George Eastman. He was the guy who founded Eastman Kodak. George Eastman left school when he was 14 years old to go to work at an insurance company in Rochester, New York. And he did that because his father had passed away. And once his father had died, George Eastman felt that he needed to go and get a job in order to provide for his mother and for his two older sisters. Several years later, after he had been working for a while, Eastman became fascinated with photography, but he was really frustrated that the equipment was so bulky and awkward to use, and he began to tweak cameras. He began to take stuff apart and try and figure out ways to put it back together and make it more compact and more user-friendly. And he was really working on a better solution. And among his many contributions was the development of photo-finishing chemicals, and after a time, paper companies began to work on using techniques created by Eastman to coat paper for special photographic use. So Kodak was selling photographic paper, but they were doing so at a premium. Other companies began to spring up trying to sell photocopier, or not photocopier, but photographic paper to customers, but at a reduced price. So you saw a lot of competition come up in those days. Kodak was doing very well, it had really made a name for itself early on as a, a photography company. But these other companies that were mostly paper companies that were trying to coat paper so that they could be used for photographic purposes, uh, they were trying very hard to try and, uh, and, and compete with Kodak's consumer products. Now, Eastman also made significant contributions to the community of Rochester. He was very much a believer in reinvesting into his community, and that included co-founding the University of Rochester with John D. Rockefeller. And Kodak was the largest employer in the area leading into the 20th century. In 1882, another important person in our story enters, and that is Joseph Robert Wilson, sometimes known as Dick to his friends and family and Mr. J.R. to pretty much everybody else. The reason he was called J.R. is his father was Joseph C. Wilson. So you had two Joe Wilsons, and there's going to be a third in just a minute. Uh, and so to differentiate the two, you had Joe C. Wilson, who was a, a fairly important person in the Rochester community, and then uh, Joseph Robert Wilson, or J.R. As a young man, J.R. worked in his father's pawn shop in Rochester, he met a young lady named Catherine M. Upton. She was the daughter of a railroad engineer, and the two of them fell in love, aww, and they got married in 1903. Now, while all of that's going on, while the Wilson's uh, family is starting to grow, one year earlier, in 1902, another company was founded, and this one was called the M.H. Kuhn Company, K-U-H-N. This was a paper coating company. This company was founded by an immigrant to the United States, a person who was an emulsion maker. He made these mixtures, these emulsions that you would use to coat paper for the purposes of, of turning it into photographic paper. And uh, he ended up founding this company along with some former employees of Eastman Kodak, which, again, that company was very much the largest employer over in Rochester, New York. Now, J.R. Wilson was to start work at this company. He was supposed to become an employee. His father had arranged for it and made contact with the folks over at M.H. Kuhn and said, can my son work there? They said yes. But J.R. Wilson fell seriously ill. He, uh, he caught a disease that affected his kidneys, and it laid him out. It put him out of commission for about two years. He was not able to work. He was pretty seriously ill. Now, he eventually recovered from that illness, but by then that struggling paper company had folded. It just couldn't 
couldn't exist anymore. I realized I was talking about a paper company folding, and you may think that that was an intentional pun, but I assure you, I didn't mean it until after I had said it. So the company has gone under, and J.C. Wilson, the father, Joe, Joe C. Wilson, decided that J.R. would be able to head up his own small business. So J.C., Joe C. Wilson, decided to put up the money necessary to start a new business and brought on the employees of M.H. Kuhn in the process. So those folks came over from the company that was gone under and joined, and they named this new company the Halloid Corporation, H-A-L-O-I-D. And Halloid was in reference to some of the chemicals in this emulsion that was being used to coat the pieces of paper. This would become the company that evolves into Xerox. So this is 1906. So 1906, we get the Halloid Corporation founding. This is the moment that Xerox traces its history back to, even though you could argue it goes back even further if you're thinking in a big picture kind of way. Now, the Halloid Corporation's offices were on the eighth floor of the C.P. Ford Shoe Company on Commercial Street in Rochester, New York, and it was a loft space. So it meant that they were at the very top of this eight-story building, which later on would lead J.R. Wilson to make the amazing dad joke about how Xerox started at the top. It's great. It was literally the top floor of the building, which I think is a cute story. The Halloid Corporation's product would still be this photographic paper. So it's similar to what the previous company was making. Uh, so that if you're wondering what this is, this is the paper that photographers would use to produce photographs. And the goal of the Halloid Corporation was to make photographic paper that would be at a lower cost than what Kodak could offer. And so they could then sell smaller batches of this stuff. They couldn't produce it in the same volume that Kodak could, but they could do so at lower cost to the photographers. So they were able to make a small profitable business, but it was modest. It wasn't like, it wasn't doing crazy amounts of business like Kodak was. So Kodak really didn't have any concern. It was a tiny little company that didn't compete on any realistic level with Kodak at the time. The process they used to make their photographic paper was not exactly high tech. They would take this emulsion, they would take sheets of paper, they would coat the paper in the emulsion, and then they would dry the paper by blowing cold air across it. And they used a pretty primitive form of air conditioning to do it. They would get enormous blocks of ice and they would use fans to blow air across the ice so that they could create this cool breeze to dry off the um, the emulsion-coated pieces of paper and uh, set that emulsion mixture into the paper itself. You know, you're setting it so that it actually can be used for photographic purposes. The big disadvantage to this was that there wasn't really a lot of ways to, to perform quality control. So the product was largely inconsistent in those early days. There'd be some batches that'd be great and some batches that were not so great. And sometimes it meant that the company had to throw out a batch because it just wasn't, it wasn't good enough to, to sell to anybody. So that inconsistency was costing them money. And at that point, J.R. Wilson hired an emulsion expert, someone who really knew the chemistry behind this to help him and receive some sound advice from this expert. The expert said, what they really needed to do was relocate the company to a new spot where a new manufacturing plant that could be dedicated to the manufacturing of this photographic paper. And that would help them control the entire production experience from the beginning through to the end. And that would help guarantee a consistent, reliable product. And so in 1907, one year after they founded the company, the entire company prepared to move the operation to a new manufacturing plant. And by that, I mean the entire company consisted of a dozen people. It was very tiny at the time. The move was going to be extremely expensive, however, even though it was a tiny company. We're talking about $50,000 needed for the move to actually happen. And that doesn't sound like a lot necessarily in the grand scheme of things, but $50,000 in 1907 is the equivalent of more than a million dollars in today's money. 
So it was a significant investment that J.R. Wilson needed in order to make this happen. He did not have $50,000. And so there really weren't a whole lot of options open to him. Back in those days, you couldn't find venture capitalists or get really uh, impressive loans from banks. You essentially had to find a rich patron type person to put forth that money. So in this case, that person was Gilbert E. Mosher. Mosher had founded a company called Century Camera, which he had sold at a tidy profit to Eastman Kodak. So he was really well off already, and he agreed that he would front the Halloid Corporation the money they needed to move, but he had some really hefty demands of his own that they were going to have to meet for him to do this. One of those demands was that he himself would become the head of business operations and that his associate, J. Milner Walmsley, would have ownership control effectively of the company. That J.R. Wilson would still own shares in the company, but those shares in turn would be controlled by Walmsley, which makes the shares sound like they were Wilson's in name only. Mosher and Walmsley had a lot of experience running successful businesses, and J.R. really wasn't in any position to disagree. He would later complain extensively about the two of them uh, and their management style, which was very different from his own. It was, however, a great move for the company. It, it led the Halloid Corporation to a profitable business. JR was known as being a, a great guy to customers. He was really outgoing and gregarious to people who were coming in to, to look at the products. But he had a reputation for being easily upset at his employees. He had these sort of dark moods in the office and was known to berate people if he felt that they were not doing a good enough job. And uh, it was it was kind of tough, it sounds like, to be an employee of J.R. Wilson, that it was not always very pleasant, that when he was happy, things were great, but he could get really angry at the drop of a hat, according to some reports from his employees at the time. So, again, J.R. Wilson was known for complaining about his bosses, Mo uh, Mosher and uh, Walmsley, but uh, otherwise, things kept on going pretty well. His young son, J.R. Wilson's young son, Joseph Chamberlain Wilson, named after his grandfather. So you had Joe C. Wilson, J.R. Wilson, then you have Joe Wilson. Everyone refers to this particular Joe Wilson as the Joe Wilson. So uh, Joseph Chamberlain Wilson, he witnessed his father's behavior and took note of it and essentially said, you know what, if I'm ever in a position where I'm leading a business, I am not going to follow this particular managerial style. I'm not going to yell at my employees in this way. I'm not going to be partying with them after hours and going drinking at all hours and then turning around and yelling at them. And I'm certainly not going to go home and complain about the people who made this business possible because they fronted a huge amount of money so that we could have the manufacturing facilities we need. So he was taking this all as kind of object lessons at the time. He was a very young man around this time. Now, young Joe Wilson was a good student. He enjoyed studying. He was a fairly quiet and shy young man. But he also was an honor student. He was a valedictorian of his high school class. And afterward, he enrolled in, at the University of Rochester. Now, originally, he was looking at possibly moving away and doing studies at some other university. His father, however, J.R., said, hey, if you enroll in classes at University of Rochester, I'll give you a Buick. And Joe Wilson said, I like a Buick. And so he enrolled at the University of Rochester uh, and pursued a degree in economics. He ended up getting two Buicks, actually, um, although the second one replaced the first one. It wasn't like he was driving two of them at the same time, strapped to his feet like giant electric razors. That's silly. You don't have those scooters back at that time. And I like the thought of it. I want to see fan art of Joe Wilson astride two Buicks, gloriously riding off into the sunset. But I can't draw that, so I leave that up to you guys. He had really good grades at university in every single class except for physical education. He was not a sporty kind of guy. 
He had, uh, he was nearsighted and he, he liked to participate in a supportive fashion in sports. Like he would be a manager for a team, but he didn't like playing on teams or, or participating in sports directly. After he got his undergraduate degree, he really wasn't sure what he wanted to do next. He wasn't sure where he wanted to go. And part of that was not just him being uncertain. It was because the United States at the time was entering the Great Depression. And this was an incredibly difficult time for millions of people in the United States. So he he saw that there were fewer and fewer options. There were fewer jobs that were out there. And a professor of his said, you know what you probably should do since you don't really have an idea of where you want to go yet and things are pretty tough. You should enroll at the Harvard Business School and attend there for a couple of years and really expand your education. You'll get to see more opportunities that way and you might end up landing something you really want. And he thought, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. And of course, worst case scenario, I can go work for my dad's company, the Halloid Corporation. So he goes and he enrolls in the Harvard Business School. While he was there, 20% of his classmates had to drop out during their first year due to the Great Depression. They either had to leave in order to help support their families, or they literally could not afford to attend anymore. And so uh, it was a pretty hefty dropout rate when you lose a fifth of your classmates due to the economic times. But he was able to stick with it, and he graduated with honors from the Harvard Business School. And in the meantime, he also would work for the Halloid Corporation. Uh, he worked in their New York City office. But yeah, he he ended up working there, especially in the summers, and he made $20 a week as an assistant to the bookkeeping department. He would continue working for Halloid after graduating, and he also got engaged to a woman named Peggy Curran. He had actually met Peggy Curran while... He was studying at the University of Rochester. Uh, she was a friend of a friend. That friend that they had in common ended up uh, catching pneumonia and was very seriously ill for quite some time. And both Joe Wilson and Peggy Curran would check in on this mutual friend they had. Um, and they wanted to make sure he was all right. And as a result, they met each other. They fell in love. They started dating. They had a massive, ugly breakup. Peggy ended up moving away from Rochester for a while uh, to Buffalo, distant, exotic Buffalo, New York. And Joe Wilson was despondent, but figured that, you know, that was just something that had run its course until he encountered another friend of his who said, hey, where's that nice young lady you were always hanging out with? And he says, oh, well, she's moved off to Buffalo. She shuffled off to Buffalo, in fact. And the fellow said, you need to get your butt to Buffalo because she was the best thing that ever happened to you. And if you don't do it, you're an idiot. And Joe Wilson said, you know what? You're probably right. He shuffled his way off to Buffalo and he started to court Peggy anew, who was not immediately receptive to his advances. But she eventually started listening to him more and the story goes that at the end of one of their their meetings, uh, she was on a train to leave and he was on the platform to see her off. And as the train pulled out, she leaned out and yelled, yes, I will marry you, which is adorable that that uh, worked out that way. Well, all of this is obviously big life changing moments for Joe Wilson and uh he would end up marrying Peggy Curran on October 12th, 1935. Uh, he's also still working with the Halloid Corporation. And things were actually going pretty well over at Halloid. Unlike many other businesses during the Great Depression, Halloid was actually making a profit. They weren't just staying in business. They were making money. They weren't blowing everything out of the water. But in a world where many people were out of a job, this was a company that was actually able to stay solvent and make a profit, which is no small shakes. Uh, also, photography was still one of the really big uh, developing industries. Huh, I didn't mean to make that pun either, but it was a developing industry at that time. Halloyd also paid attention to some really interesting uh, innovations. For example, there was a chemist named Homer Piper who created a new product called Halloid Record in 1931, which would become a very popular product. And it was this 
contribution that led to the company's overall success, particularly as they were uh, wading through the rest of the Depression. This lesson really made a mark on young Joe Wilson. He saw that there was this innovation that really set Halloid Corporation apart and helped guarantee them some success. And he said that lesson was something he would carry with him through the rest of his life, that he wanted to make sure that the company that he worked for, whether it was Halloid Corporation or someone else, would always pursue innovation because only through innovation can you make sure that you are guaranteeing you have a spot at the industry. If you stick with the same thing and you never deviate from it sooner or later, someone else is going to do it better than you do and you're going to be out of business. So he said the only way you could prosper would be to cultivate a company that pursued innovation in an effort to avoid stagnation. Now, you might wonder, what the heck is Halloid Record? Well, it was a type of photographic paper that was used in rectograph and photostat machines. Now, that means I actually have the opportunity to tell you about how some tech works. This is tech stuff, after all, and it is part of how stuff works. So we're going to actually talk about how the rectograph and photostat machines worked. And we'll get back to the story of Xerox Company once I'm done with that. Now, before I go and get all that tech stuff out of the way, we actually do need to take a quick break first and thank our sponsors. All right, so I was talking about rectograph and photostat machines, and what the heck are these things? Well, they use the process of photography to make copies. So here's how they worked in general. Specifically, photostat machines work this way. You start off with a fairly large apparatus uh, inside which you would load photographic paper, such as the type that Haloid made, the Haloid record, uh, that stuff I talked about just a second ago. In fact, the Rectograph Company, which got its start in the early 1900s, relocated from Oklahoma City to Rochester, New York, specifically because they relied upon the Haloid Company's photographic paper for their products. So they said, well, we're going to relocate our company to be closer to that one so that we can decrease the uh, the supply chain, which was kind of interesting that they would make that big of a move. Now, this apparatus, whether it was a Rectograph or Photostat, would have a large camera as its main component. And you would take a photo of documents. So you have some documents set out on a platform, you light it really well, and you take a picture of it. And a photo takes a while. Like you would have the exposure last maybe 10 seconds. So think of a shutter speed on a camera lasting 10 seconds. That means that you have to keep it perfectly still. Any motion is going to be seen as blur in the final image. And since you're trying to make a copy of a document and be able to read it, it meant that you had to keep things absolutely still. Uh, this image is then exposed onto rolls of photographic paper, such as that Haloid record. There'd be uh, a prism between the lens and the paper that could reverse this image. Otherwise, everything would be a 180-degree mirror image of the original documentation. And then uh, the photostat approach would differ a little bit from the rectograph. With photostat, which was largely supported by Kodak, Kodak was not officially the parent company of the photostat company, but they might as well have been. With the photostat, after you expose this photographic paper to the image, you'd take the paper, you would treat it chemically like a old-style photograph. You put it through the development chemicals to develop that image. You would end up with a negative image of the papers that you shot. So uh, all the dark areas would be light and all the light areas would be dark. You could then photograph the this negative to create a positive print of the original document. So you have to send it through a second round of photography, but then you could print out the original documents. And that's how you would make copies. You would photograph that negative print repeatedly and you would produce the copies you wanted. It was slow, but a lot faster than doing all of this by hand. Now, the rectograph process did not require that intermediate negative step. You could print directly from the camera onto the photographic paper. And this ended up being an enormous benefit of the rectograph compared to the photostat because of the United States court system. You see, 
the court system ruled that photostatic copies are inadmissible as evidence in a court of law because you could actually tamper with that intermediate negative and alter evidence. So if you could get hold of that negative that was produced from the first part of the photostatic process and change it, all the prints you make would be the product of these changed negatives. But the rectograph didn't have that intermediate negative. It was printing directly on the photographic paper. And then you had your print right then and there. And for that reason, it was admissible as court evidence because there was nothing for you to be able to alter. You were taking images of a document and that was what the copies would be. Uh, So the rectograph company could survive against this much more financially solid photostatic company, even though the photostatic company had the backing of Eastman Kodak. So it was a, a benefit just of the way the technology worked. It just happened to be that it was uh, an advantage that photostatic didn't have. And that's how Rectograph, despite being a much smaller entity, was able to survive. And again, they're working with the Haloid Corporation. This would also be a precursor to electrostatic photocopying, which is what Xerox would build its name on. It's a completely different process, and we will go through and talk about how it works later in this episode. But this kind of was the thing that gets Joe Wilson thinking about branching out from just making photographic paper. They, the company needs to make something else in order to not just get knocked out of business by Eastman Kodak. So Halloween Corporation at that point was just making paper, not the actual machines to you to create copies. And the Halloid record was in high demand even during the Depression that that let Halloid Corporation stay in business. Employees were able to ride out the tough times in relative prosperity compared to their fellow citizens of the United States. But being in such close proximity with Eastman Kodak, I mean, both companies were in Rochester, New York, which at the time was fairly small. It it was kind of scary because Eastman Kodak was clearly interested in dominating that photographic paper business. So it meant that they were in the danger zone. They took the highway there. Fortunately for Halloid, the U.S. government was really cracking down on companies that were becoming monopolies. This was an era in which the government would force massive companies to break up into smaller ones if, in fact, they were a monopoly within their industry or within specific regions. Because monopolies are, they're non-competitive. There's no way for the consumer to benefit. If there's only one company that's providing the thing, they can demand whatever price they want, and they're the only game in town. See also internet service providers in the United States. Unlike certain people, I do not agree that a single ISP in a region allows for competition. Enough of that. Anyway, so turns out Eastman Kodak really didn't want to push anyone else out of business either, because if they did, then the government might look at Kodak and say, you're clearly a monopoly. We're going to break up your company into smaller pieces. So in order for them to stay a solid single company... Kodak wanted to encourage competition in the space, as long as that competition wasn't so great as to actually pose a threat. And the Haloid Corporation, while it made photographic paper, which is what Eastman Kodak was making a lot of, it was too small for it to be a real threat. So Kodak wanted Haloid Corporation to continue to exist. It benefited Kodak because it meant that they could keep on operating without the danger of being called a monopoly. And it helped that Halloid Corporation was in Rochester, the same as Eastman Kodak was, because Kodak could easily point to Halloid Corporation and say, look, clearly we're not a monopoly. Here's a company in our hometown that does the same thing we're doing, and they're in business. So it was kind of an insurance policy for Kodak against getting broken up into smaller companies, uh, which meant Halloid Corporation, while it wasn't terribly flattering to be seen as an insurance policy, was able to continue to exist and to innovate. In 1935, Halloid would purchase the Rectograph Company, that same company I was talking about earlier that had relocated from Oklahoma City to Rochester, New York in 1907. By 1935, the companies had been working very closely together. The founder of the Rectograph Company had kind of lost interest in business. 
he had become obsessed with golf and just wanted to retire and become a golfer. So they started to arrange this acquisition for Halloid Company to buy the Rectograph Company and bring both of those entities under one figurative roof. The following year, 1936, Halloid converted into a publicly traded company, and they started selling shares of the company on the stock exchange. This was in part to help pay for that acquisition, to raise the capital needed to buy the Rectograph Company. They went public and sold off shares. That meant a flood, uh, influx of cash came into the company, and they could dedicate that to acquiring the Rectograph Company. Now, one of the employees of the Rectograph Company was initially pretty unhappy about this acquisition. It was a German immigrant named John de Sauer, and he had immigrated from Germany in 1929, partly because his father said, you should go to America. There's lots of opportunity there. He also wanted to avoid being drafted into what would eventually become Hitler's armed forces. So he, he could kind of see the writing on the wall and did not want to be part of that. He moved to the United States. He was barely able to speak any English. He was on the streets of New York City, and it took him weeks for him to find a job. So he was uh, practically destitute on the streets of New York trying to find work. He eventually found some work. He was able to find a German-speaking employee of another company and found some work uh, before joining the Rectograph company. And he would become incredibly important because it was it was uh, de Sauer who would see an article about a piece of technology that would become a cornerstone of Halloid Corporation and later on the Xerox company. So it's a good thing that he decided to stick around with Halloid Corporation. Otherwise, the history of Xerox would possibly have ended sometime around 1947, 48, something like that. Now, around the same time, there was a law student who was creating that very technology that DeSauer would learn about and then bring over to Halloid Corporation. Uh, this guy was named Chester Carlson. And Carlson had a real problem on his hands. So he was attending law school. He was studying patent law. And he had to copy lots and lots of text from various law books. And it was a painstaking process. Carlson also suffered from arthritis. So it was literally painful for him to make all these copies. He had arthritis of the spine and bending over a, a table, scratching down copies of legal text was excruciatingly painful. And he thought there has to be a better way. And he started to experiment. He started to think about ways where he might be able to make a copy of a text quickly and easily. and. He later on would land a job at the patent office, which meant that he had to continue making copies. So he had a real drive to figuring out how to solve this problem. And he found an article in a, a German science journal. It was written by a guy named Paul Selenier. Selenier was uh, interested in photoconductivity and electrostatic images. Uh, Selenier had, had observed that when light touched a photoconductive surface, the electrical conductivity of that surface would increase as a result. And Carlson looked at that idea and began to experiment with chemicals and paper to see if he might find a practical application of that information. He said, well, now that we know that it does this, maybe there's something we could specifically do with that information that would allow us to make copies. So he ended up working on this. He worked out of the home for a long time of, Eventually, his wife demanded that he open up a uh, a lab somewhere else. He was cooking up sulfur <laughs> in his home, and so his house would often smell of rotten eggs. There was one time where apparently some of the chemicals he was working on over the flame of his home stove caught fire and nearly uh, turned into a catastrophe, although they were able to put out the flames before any massive damage was done. His wife said, you know what? For the sake of our marriage, you're going to find a different place to do this. And so he moved out. Uh, he moved all the experiments out of their home. He opened up a small research lab and he hired on a research assistant named Otto Corne. And they started working with a zinc plate 
so a plate made out of zinc, and they coated it with sulfur. And then they decided to try and make a copy of some information that they could lay down against this zinc plate. Uh, they used a glass microscope slide as their document. And on this glass slide, they used some India ink and they wrote out the following. 10-22-38 Astoria. They shaded down the windows. They pulled all the curtains. They made it as dark as they could. Uh, Kearney then rubbed this zinc plate with a handkerchief to help build up an electrostatic charge. So this is similar to grabbing a balloon and rubbing the balloon against, say, uh, a sweater so that you can build up an electrostatic charge and then hold that balloon near your kid's head so that your kid's hair all stands out on end. It's fun to do, just in general. Your kid gets to learn science and you get to make your kid look like a crazy person. So highly recommended. So uh, same effect, though. You're building up this electrostatic charge. So he's rubbing down this zinc plate coated in sulfur with a handkerchief, builds up an electric electrostatic charge across the surface of the plate. They would then lay this glass slide on top of the plate. Then they exposed the whole plate to a very bright incandescent lamp. They turned off the lamp, they removed the slide, and then they would cover the plate in a sprinkling of lycopodium powder, which they then would gently blow away. So they blow the excess powder off. So you've got this zinc plate with sulfur coating it. You put the little, uh, you, you rub it down so you get the electrostatic charge built up. You put the glass microscope uh, slide on there with the ink on it. You expose it to light, turn the light off, remove the slide, put this powder on there, blow the powder off, and lo and behold, the spots where the ink had been, the the dark spots, the powder adhered to it. Everywhere else, the, the powder blew away, but in the spot where the ink was, the powder remained. So it stuck to the sections that had not been exposed to the bright light. They repeated this experiment a few times to verify the results, make sure they weren't just imagining that the area that had been covered by ink was still coated in dust. They wanted to make sure they were right. And then after a few more tries, they decided, let's see if we can transfer the print that's left behind with this dust onto something else. And they used wax sheets of paper. So sheets of wax paper, I should say, not wax sheets of paper. Sheets of wax paper. So they would heat up the wax paper a little bit to melt the wax lay it down against the plate, and that melted wax would adhere to the powder that was left behind. They lifted it up and saw that, sure enough, it left a copy. It was a successful copy. And then Carlson proceeded to patent the crap out of everything because he had worked in the patent office and he knew how important patents were. So he was very wise to protect his intellectual property, and he got lots of patents uh, about this uh, technology. Meanwhile, back over at the Halloid Corporation in 1938, Mosher, who had been there, remember, since 1907, he was the one who fronted the money that allowed them to locate them uh, at an actual manufacturing plant. He decided he would not stand for re-election as the president of the company. He was ready to retire. Now, J.R. Wilson, the guy who was the founder of this company and the father of Joe Wilson, would become the president. Joe Wilson became secretary-treasurer. By 1940, Joe Wilson was elected to the company's board of directors, and he had become involved in managerial meetings. He was always looking for ways that the company could continue to innovate and make itself secure while still existing within the shadow of Kodak, which, again, was a giant in Rochester, New York. In 1944... Joe Wilson was poised to take over the company from his father. So he was going to become the next president. In fact, he was well on his way to having that happen. That's when John DeSauer had transitioned to become the head of research over at Halloid. And in July 1944, John DeSauer read an article in the periodical Radio News that was all about this process that Carlson had created. At that point, Carlson had entered into a partnership with a nonprofit research organization called the Battelle Memorial Institute. 
and DeSauer saw the potential, no pun intended, of using photoconductive processes to make copies, and Halloyd was ready to make a deal. Now, that deal would end up being fairly favorable to Battelle, that nonprofit organization. They held the rights to Carlson's idea, and the organization would end up receiving 60% of any royalties from the invention. The Battelle version was a little different from Carlson's original experiments. For one thing, the organization had ditched the sulfur-coated zinc plate in favor of using selenium, which is a common chemical element and much more effective than sulfur if you want to use it for this purpose. Selenium is a semiconductor, meaning there are times when it acts as a conductor of electricity and times when it acts as an insulator. That's exactly the property you want for something like this. If you're going to charge part of a surface and leave another part of the surface uncharged, it needs to be of semiconductor material. Battelle had also designed a new type of powder to work with this process. It's what we would now call toner, dry particles of ink that would stick to surfaces. These days, they are small plastic particles, and they uh, they are attached to little carrier particles. The, the combination of toner and carrier particles together are called developer. So you have the developer uh, stuff that sticks to the, the elements that are used uh, in photocopiers. On January 1st, 1947, Halloyd Corporation and Battelle signed an agreement giving Halloyd the right to use this process and its products. This was despite Halloyd's relatively modest financial performance over the last several years. Battelle could have chosen to partner with somebody else, but it turns out that that organization was worried that if someone other than Halloyd Corporation took over this process, it might just sit on a shelf somewhere. No one would actually do anything useful. They, they'd buy it without actually making use of it, but they were pretty confident that Halloyd Corporation was going to use this process, which is what Battelle really wanted, uh, because Halloyd Corporation needed to do something or else it wasn't going to be competitive in the market much longer. One of the first things that the two parties agreed upon was that they needed a new name for the process. Carlson had called it electrophotography, but neither Battelle researchers nor Halloid employees really felt that that name worked very well. So Battelle suggested a new word, xerography, X-E-R-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. This was a suggestion from a classical language professor over at Ohio State, and it combined two words uh, from Greek, the word for dry and the word for writing, xerography. In 1949, the Halloid Company introduced a new product called the Xerox Copier. The first mention of Xerox. This, by the way, was uh, capital X, E-R-O, capital X. So you had capital X's on either side. The device was largely manual. It was not an automatic copier, so you had to do a lot of this work by hand. And it was more than a little challenging to operate by someone who wasn't familiar with the technology. Still, it was more efficient to produce copies using it than to hand type the documents. So despite the fact that it was a little slow and a little cumbersome, had a high barrier to entry because you had to learn how to use it, it still found a market. It was a modest market, but it found one. And this would presage the new name of the company. In 1954, C. Peter McCullough, interviewed with the Halloid Corporation. And McCullough had previously been the vice president of sales at the Lehigh Navigation Coal Sales Company. And he almost didn't take the gig because he came into the corporate offices of Halloid and they seemed kind of rinky-dink. According to McCullough, the shelf of the uh, that was in the executive's office was not really a shelf. It was a repurposed crate. And he just felt that any place where the executive furniture happened to be made out of old crates probably wasn't on the up and up, or at least not like poised to take over the world. However, Joe Wilson could be a really convincing guy, and he talked a lot about his belief in innovation and their desire to grow, and he was able to convince McCullough to join. Now, McCullough would later come one of the uh, become one of the iconic leaders of Xerox, so He'll be more important in our part two episode. In 1955, the company introduced a new technology called copy flow. 
And that's flow spelled F-L-O, kiss my grits. It was an automated xerographic machine that would create enlarged prints on a continuous roll of photographic paper. And it would pull those prints from microfilm originals. So you get some microfilm. It's got images on it. You feed the microfilm into the machine. This would then be able to produce enlarged copies, which would make it much easier to create multiple copies of the same document. And it simultaneously cut down on document storage space because you could just store the originals as microfilm. You didn't need to have big, bulky copies. The copy flow system eschewed the plate that previous copiers had relied upon and introduced a new component that would become incredibly important, the rotating drum. And a rotating drum allowed for much faster copying. It became a standard piece of Xerox equipment in various copiers. And I'll talk more about how those copiers actually work in the next section of this episode. But before I get there, I wanted to add a little bit more about what was going on in the 1950s and early 1960s. By 1956, the Xerographic division of Halloid was contributing about 40% of all the revenue for the company. And that percentage would grow over the next couple of years. By 1958, Halloid executives saw the photocopied writing on the wall and the company underwent a transformation and was renamed Halloid Xerox in 1958. It was in 1959 that the company introduced a flagship product that was a breakout success, and that was the 914 copier. It was called the 914 because it could handle paper sizes up to 9 inches by 14 inches. The first copiers shipped in 1960, and by 1962, the company had sold 10,000 units, which was twice the number they expected to sell, plus they had a backlog of orders that were coming in. So they were not being, they, they could not make them fast enough, which is a great problem to have. The success translated into dollar dollar bills, y'all. In 1959, the company's income was about $2 million. 1960, the revenue would grow to $2.6 million. In 1961, it was $5.3 million. That's also the year Halloid Xerox dropped Halloid from its name and just became Xerox, 1961. And by 1962, income had reached $13.9 million. By 1963, it had hit $22.6 million. So it's effectively almost doubling every year, in some cases more than doubling. The company saw incredible benefits as Joe Wilson's argument that success would come by pursuing innovation seemed absolutely justified. Now, when we get back, I'm going to tell you how photocopiers actually work. And I'm going to be referring to an article. It's on a little website called How Stuff Works. So you can actually follow along if you like in your, in your guidebooks. But for now, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. But in part two, we'll take a look at how Xerox has made a huge impact on the way we interact with technology today. And a lot of it has nothing to do with photocopiers. But Xerox is known for photocopiers, so much so that uh, the company has had to fight over the years a few times. They, I think, eventually had to give it up. The fact that people would refer to making a photocopy as Xeroxing something. There's the, the danger of this is that they named their company after a word they had already invented based on a Greek word for dry writing, right? Xerography, Xerography, and then calling it Xerox. Uh, so people began to just refer to the act of photocopying as Xeroxing, and it became one of those terms like Kleenex or Jello, where the use of it is so universal that the trademark is no longer really enforceable, not specifically uh, in those instances. Like you couldn't go out and make a photocopier and call it a Xerox machine and have that printed on the side if you're not Xerox. But you could call the act Xeroxing and no one's going to lift an eye because, or an eyebrow rather, because it, it was universal. Everyone called it Xeroxing. But how does it actually work? And this is where we talk about photoconductivity and semiconductors and that kind of thing. So you start with a drum. This drum is coated with a semiconductor material. Uh, technically, it tends to be selenium these days, just like they started to make that change when the Halloid Corporation got involved. Uh, selenium, very useful material, semiconductor material. By uh, exposing selenium to bright light, you 
end up uh, building up a a charge, a strong positive charge on the surface of the selenium. It actually separates out the charge. On the inner side of the drum, you have a negative charge. On the outer side of the drum, you have a positive charge. Uh, actually, it's not even with the light. That's actually just passing the drum next to a high voltage wire. It's called a corona wire. So you have these corona wires that charge up the drum by uh, having an electric current running through a high voltage electric current running through them. This charge separates out, as I said, the light actually ends up making that charge change. It creates an electric conductivity wherever the light hits the drum. So when the light hits the drum, it allows uh, electric current to pass through those charges that had separated out are reconciled and you go back to a neutral charge on the drum. Any place where the light hits the drum, you get a neutral charge. Any place where the light doesn't hit the drum, you still have that positive charge. So, photocopiers. You get your image that you want to photocopy. Uh, let's say it's a picture of a cute dog, and let's give this dog a name. We'll call him Tybalt. So you've got a picture of a cute dog named Tybalt, and he's adorable. And everyone wants a copy of a picture of a cute dog named Tybalt, but how are you going to make copies of it? Well, you go to your photocopier and you slap that photo down on the, the scanner of the photocopier. What then happens is when you hit start, a bright light that comes from an incandescent or fluorescent lamp, it doesn't have to be of any special frequency, apart from you don't want something like red or infrared light. That's not going to be powerful enough. But anything in the visible spectrum is fine uh, outside of red. You have this bright light hit the picture of Tybalt, and it sends uh, a reflection of that image down to hit this rotating drum that has previously been uh, charged with an electrostatic charge thanks to those two corona wires that were high voltage. So this drum, before any light hits it, has got a positive charge on its surface. The uh, any place on the image that is bright, that is white, will reflect the light well down into the photocopier. It goes through a lens, hits another mirror, and then it hits the drum in the right location as that light scans the original image. Anything that's dark absorbs light more than reflects it. And so it's not reflecting nearly as much light down through the system. So those are areas of the drum that are not receiving light. Those areas of the drum remain positively charged. So anything that the light has touched has been neutralized, but the rest of that drum is still positively charged. As the drum rotates, it then comes in contact with toner, which is negatively charged. And we know through Coulomb's law, that positive and negative charges attract one another, right? Like charges repel, opposite charges attract. So you have these sections on the drum that are positively charged because the light never touched it. It represents the dark spots on that original image. They end up attracting toner. So the drum gets toner on it. As the drum continues to rotate, it comes in contact with a sheet of paper that has also been charged by passing close to one of these corona wires. So you have a very strong positive charge on that side of the piece of paper that's coming into contact with the drum. Those particles that are on the drum are still negatively charged. If the charge on the piece of paper is the the positive charge on the piece of paper is greater than the one that's on the drum, it pulls that toner away from the drum and onto the paper. So essentially, whoever has the strongest electric charge wins. It's like a tug of war. So think of the positive charge on the drum as one side of a tug of war. The positive charge on the piece of paper is the other side of the tug of war. And on the drum side, you've got Rick Moranis. And on the uh, the paper side, you've got Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Dwayne The Rock Johnson's about to get coated in toner because he's going to pull way harder than Rick Moranis is. 
So the toner moves to the piece of paper that has the strong positive charge to it, which then passes through a pair of rollers that are heated to fuse the toner to the paper. This is what finalizes that image. It's what makes you get a, a nice dry copy at the end of it. You don't have to worry about smearing ink or anything like that because it's all dried by the time it comes out. And then you have a copy of your original image. All the parts that were dark have the toner attached to it. All the parts that were light don't have any toner attached to it because, again, those light sections were neutralized on that rotating drum. This is all because of that photoconductivity of selenium and the semiconductor nature. So it's pretty cool to think that by playing with positive and negative electrical charges, you can attract toner to a drum and then subsequently to a piece of paper, but only in the parts that are important to you for making your copy. Now, this is the basis of those rotating drum copiers. Not all copiers use rotating drums. Some are a belt system as opposed to a drum system. But uh, a lot of those early Xerox machines, in fact, use this rotating drum process. And part of the reason for that is because it allows for rapid copying. In fact, one of the copiers that Xerox would introduce in the early 60s was called, I believe, the 2400. And the reason was is it could do 2400 copies in an hour, which at the time was spectacularly fast because uh, it had this continuous rotating drum system. You just had to make sure you had enough paper to feed into it and enough toner to last, and you could do that. Uh, I think that it's a really clever way of using physics to create a working product that ends up being of huge value to anyone who needs to make copies of stuff. And it's pretty neat to look into. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, there's uh, an article called How Photocopiers Work, and you can read it. It's great. I've got it right in front of me right here. It's uh, a really helpful piece of information if you want to see in more detail. And it even has illustrations and animations to show you what that process is like. So I'm glad I had the opportunity to actually talk about how that technology works in this episode. Because sometimes on Tech Stuff, we don't really get to talk about tech stuff that much not from a how it works angle. And this was a particularly interesting one. Now, in our next episode, we're going to look at how Xerox evolved past this initial approach. Obviously, they made a huge impact in the business world with the advent of these copiers. And we'll talk more about that too, about how Xerox grew as a company. Uh, but I can't wait to go into the next episode and talk about Xerox Park because that's a really interesting organization that again, contributed ideas that were fundamentally important to the way we interact with technology today. And we'll talk more about that in our next episode. If you guys have any topics that you want me to cover in future episodes, whether it's a company or a technology or a person, maybe there's someone you want me to interview, let me know. Send me a message. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. And remember, you can watch me record these episodes live at twitch.tv slash techstuff. I also chat with people who are in the chat room in between recording sessions, and we have a grand old time talking about classic television series that only Jonathan remembers. So if you want to listen to an old man talk about bad sitcoms, or, you know, watch me talk about tech live, that's probably more attractive prospect, go to twitch.tv slash techstuff, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. 
That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.